Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10. We started this short series last week, Lamb and Lion, um, in Hebrews chapter 9. And we're in Hebrews 10 today to, uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up on what's going on here as we're doing Lamb and Lion. Um, in previous years, we've always tried to, as we're leading up to Easter with Good Friday, uh, do a sermon series with Good Friday or leading up to, to Easter with Good Friday and Easter and do a, a, a contrast, the, the sharpest contrast that we can draw um, from, from Good Friday to, to Easter. And so as much as we can uh, in the leading up or in Good Friday, using the overtones of darkness um, or using the, the dreadfulness of sin, uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ, um, having all those things being shown to us so that when we get to Easter, in contrast to that, the brightness of being forgiven, the greatness of knowing Christ. Um, and here, uh, the Bible has a, a metaphor uh, that it uses, and it's the lamb and the lion. And so in the same way we're doing that, uh, you would never put those two together and think they're equal. So uh, leading up to Easter and today, um, and, and on Good Friday, we're, we're highlighting the lamb-likeness of Christ, the, the willingness to be the sacrifice, the willingness to uh, be the meek, pure, spotless, gentle sacrifice so that when we get to Easter, uh, the, the lion will be unleashed, if you will, uh, and then we'll contrast the lamb uh, with the lion, the powerful ruler, the conqueror of death, the promised one who's going to rule and reign forever, who defeats Satan's sin and death for us on our behalf, uh, and while he was the perfect sacrifice to, to die for us on the cross as the lamb, he's also the lion who rules and reigns because he defeated Satan, sin, and death. So that's, the, uh, that's where we're going as we're doing the lamb and the lion. And the way that we're doing that um, is highlighting the lamb li- lambness of, lamb-likeness of, of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So, <clears throat> like I said, if you have a Bible, you can, uh, you can open it up to Hebrews chapter 10 today. Uh, Hebrews is after the Pauline letters, so just look for Philemon, and then it's after that. And as I said, we're going to, um, as we're looking at this, the goal as you look at from last week in Hebrews 9 into chapter 10, uh, the contrast is that when we, even today, but especially as we get to Easter, our, our hearts would be super excited and in awe of what Christ has done for us, and we would be absolutely joyful that the conquering lamb has given us forgiveness of sin. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we will, <coughs> excuse me, uh, be in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give you a little bit of a, if you weren't here last week, um, a little bit of a um, background on the book of Hebrews pretty fast, and then we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you've given to us in Christ. Pray for this Sunday morning as we look at your word. We know that your word, uh, no matter what is going on with the speaker, um, doesn't return void. And so I pray that you would use me this morning to preach your word and that uh, really you would remove me out of the way and that you would speak by the Holy Spirit through me and to me as well, and that we would all be taught more about who Christ is. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel isn't just something that we come to in order to get saved, and then after that move on to more deep things. But instead, the gospel is the deep thing. It is the thing we never move away from. That just as important as the gospel message to get saved is the gospel message to continue in our salvation, to continue in being sanctified. And so as we look at this text today on sanctification, God, I pray that you would help us understand the goodness of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ even more. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are willing to be the lamb, to sacrifice himself. And that was always the plan. We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is a, a complicated letter. If you have tried to read it some, you've, you've seen that it's a little different. It's not as straightforward as, you know, maybe reading um, a, 
a Pauline epistle. Um, Paul is confusing. Peter says he's confusing, but um, on the whole, I think Paul's some, sometimes pretty simple to read uh, in even the Gospels, but Hebrews is a unique book. We don't know who the author is. Uh, he's anonymous, but he's writing to people who are Jewish. Um, they had a deep understanding of the Old Testament, and as he's writing to them, <coughs> excuse me, um, as he's writing to them, he's explaining how Christ is superior uh, to everything, and he's relating back to the Old Testament, and he's showing in his argument uh, in the book of Hebrews how Christ is superior. The book of Hebrews um, most likely is just a sermon. If you took it and read it out loud, um, it would probably take about an hour, and so it was, it was likely just a sermon uh, that, that was preached and put down on paper. Um, and so it's supposed to be read and from beginning to end and all in one sitting to get the full argument of the superiority of Christ in all things. Um, as he preached this sermon, as it was written, it was written to people who were being persecuted. And so while we might not think it's necessarily, uh, and he, written to, he wrote it to be encouraging. And so he, he's writing to them in their, in their persecution to encourage them by saying, hey, you don't need to worry. Everything's fine. Jesus is superior to all things. Well, that doesn't necessarily maybe kind of prima facie at first glance uh, find, necessarily encourage you. You would want, hey, you're awesome. Hey, you're going to make it through this. You're, you're the best. Um, he, he takes a different angle instead of saying, you can be encouraged in your time of trial because Jesus is supreme in everything. You can be encouraged in your time of trial because Jesus' death for your sin was absolutely sufficient. That's, that's his goal. And as we, as we look at the entire book, um, especially in, I think, the arguments that we're looking at in chapters 9 and 10, uh, we saw that last week, and hopefully we'll see that again. Um, it's not about trying to make you awesome, but instead it's about trying to put the spotlight on Christ and show you that he's awesome and being forgiven for all your sin is amazing and that we can be encouraged by that. So we are, as I said, kind of diving into the middle of the book uh, from chapters 9 and 10, so we're missing some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but as we're diving into 9 and 10, just so we can understand what's going on, the writer is talking about the difference between the Old Testament covenant and the sacrificing of animals versus the New Testament one for, once for all time sacrifice of Christ and how the once for all time sacrifice of Christ is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. That's, that's where we are in the argument. And as we're doing that, we're seeing uh, the, the lambness of God, the lamb likeness of Jesus being, being willing to be the sacrifice. So <clears throat> uh, we looked at it last week in chapter nine. And I want to pick up in chapter 10. Uh, and, and before we go into chapter 10, you, I want to... Uh, give you a little bit of a heads up of where he's going and what, what the text is, is pointing us to. It's pointing us to sanctification. Um, and so it's an interesting take, though, that the, the sacrifice of Christ has secured for us sanctification. So he doesn't necessarily just say justification. He doesn't even use the language. He, he used being sanctified. And as he's using sanctification, he's going to highlight the already not yet feeling that we all have regarding sanctification. It's right there in the text. You'll see it as we get to it. But the, the, the juxtaposition of the fact that we have already been sanctified versus we are being sanctified is going to come here. And you're going to see, well, which one is it? And he's going to say, yes. So um, starting at chapter 10, uh, verse 1, there's four things I want you to see about Jesus' Jesus's effective lamb-like sacrifice that he's make, made for us. So verse 1, he says, I, I, let me read the whole thing, and then we'll come back. For since the law has but a... Sh for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the sa same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So just to give you an understanding what he's saying, the Old Testament sacrifices of animals will never, ever make you perfect. You have to be perfect in order to be forgiven. You have to be perfect in order to go to heaven to be with Jesus. And... The Old Testament sacrifice, put yourself 2,000 years as, as they're hearing it. The Old Testament sacrifices of animals year after year will never do that. So you need something else. Verse 2. Otherwise, um, they would not have ceased to be, to be offered since the worshipers, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any conscience of sin? The answer would be yes. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will write my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, there's four things I want you to see. Um, kind of four stages of the argument as he, as he walks through it. The first is from verses one through four. You can see, we saw that as we we're looking at it. The shadows were never <coughs> the plan to save. The shadows were never the plan to save. You can see forever since the law um, has but a shadow of the good things. So the shadows in this text are uh, not necessarily like a, a shadow, you know, casting on on a wall the shadow is, is language saying this is a dim representation of the real thing so it's saying it's not the reality the shadow is just a representation of the actual reality uh, and so what we mean what he means from this is when he says shadows for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it's talking about the sacrificial system of the animals, saying that the, the sacrificial system of the animals is just the shadow. It's just the dim representation of the reality. The reality is Christ himself who died on the cross. The realities are, are the things that are being pointed to. The shadows, the only point of the shadows, which we said last week, the, the shadows or the signs don't save. That's, that's what they're saying over and over. They're never meant to save. Instead, they're meant to point you to ultimate reality. Simply put, uh, the realities are the atoning work of Christ and all of the consequences, positive consequences that, that we receive from it. And so the point of verse, verse 2 where he says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since, they, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So this rhetorical question that he's asking, the point of this rhetorical question, um, would, the answer would be yes, is that God had instituted the practices in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system so that man would not have to give his own life. Instead, a substitute could be made. So something had to happen. And so God and his... His ultimate forbearance said, well, it doesn't have to be you, man. So what we're going to do is offer in a substitute, temporary as it is. We're going to put in a substitute, these animals, and they're going to be the thing that will just annually make appeasement, annually be the thing that will be a substitute, just as it says in verse 1, a shadow of the reality. But that was never the plan. And you can see in verse 4, uh, it, it tells us that because it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the animals that were being sacrificed were never able to fully satisfy God for our sin. Believers in the Old Testament knew that the sacrifices of animals would never be able to fully cleanse them from sin. 
the worshipers continued each year as the sacrifices were being made to continually feel guilty for their sins. Much like an unbeliever today would feel continually guilty for their sin. Believers should not feel guilty. That's the, that's the contrast that he's trying to make you see. Believers who put their faith in the once for all time sacrifice of Christ do not need to feel guilty for their sin because all of it has been put on Christ. But here... Uh, the worshipers in the Old Testament continually felt guilty for their sin. And the high priest had to continually go and make sacrifices for them. The, the high priest was never able to say, your sins have been paid for once for all. That was something that he was never able to say. And all of this sacrificing of animals, all this bloodshed, all this substitution of animals for, uh, for not for us, but for the people in the Old Testament, all that is trying to point to us to this truth. That God takes sin seriously. He's always taken sin seriously. He takes sin seriously now. And he, he points to the cross as the illustration for us to say, I take it so seriously. I was willing to come, become a man in the form of my own son for you and die for you. God takes sin seriously. So he's never satisfied. He is not satisfied with the sacrifice that's presented to him. This is uh, Kistemaker says, he is not satisfied with a sacrifice that is presented to him without a broken and contrite heart. He desires a life of obedience and dedication to doing his will. Uh, dedication to doing his will. So here we see in verses 1 through 4 that the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrificial system were just a shadow. It's just a signpost. It's just pointing to ultimate reality showing us that no one could ever get saved under this system. So you might ask, well, what's the whole point of even having it at all? Well, the whole point of having it at all is to prepare those so that whenever the real sacrifice was made, there was a greater understanding. Without that, there's no greater understanding of Christ. But having gone through this year after year after year after year, when Christ finally comes... It points to ultimate reality and then you get a greater understanding of the once for all time sacrifice of Christ. It doesn't have to be done anymore. The, the feelings of guilt for sin that continually perpetuated each year are totally removed. And now, for those that put their faith in Christ, the guilt is gone. And you don't have to feel guilty for sin. And that, that points to you and say, and say, if you are finding yourself continually, as a believer in Jesus, feeling guilty about sin... That you're missing like the whole point of the gospel. You don't need to feel guilty over sin anymore. For those that have put their faith in Christ, all of your sin now has been covered. This is an amazing truth that I think most Christians, I think most Christians still keep themselves in the prison of guilt. But the point of this that it's pointing us is that believers in Jesus, it's like the, it literally is the best news ever. Stop feeling guilty. You don't have to. But I still, I can't help it. Well, you don't have to. It's, it's like the people are, how do you not feel guilty? Jesus paid for it. Some of us maybe don't have that personality. Um, but the, the point is, you do not have to feel guilty. And once you, I think, once you reach the point of not feeling guilty, it opens up an entire new world for gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Once you finally say, I really don't have to feel guilty, wow, that's because of Christ. Now I'm amazingly more gracious and, and grateful for what he's done for us. All right, so that's verses 1 through 4. Now, um, there's a turn in verses 5 through 10 that he makes. And in this, he's going to try to help us. As he's talked about the shadows and their inadequacy to be ever saved, he's going to show us that Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And because of his death and burial and resurrection and his payment um, as the Lamb, we now are recipients of complete full sanctification. Complete full sanctification. So the second thing, I said it the long way, but here it is. Jesus is superior to the shadows and gives us full sanctification. We talked about the shadows in verses 1 through 4. Now, in verses 5 through 10, he's going to show the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament sacrifice. And finishes it with verse 10 by saying, since he's superior, here's what you get. Full sanctification. And he does this in a fascinating way. He uses Psalm 40. The writer quotes Psalm 40, showing the inadequacies of the Old Testament sacrifices to deal with sin. And so, this is fascinating. Psalm 40 is written by David, and this is David's voice. 
as he wrote Psalm 40. And the writer of Hebrews puts in Jesus's voice and says, actually, this is Jesus talking. This is just fascinating. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, notice that, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. Now, these are David's words. David said this, and the writer of Hebrews saying, actually, Jesus says this too. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm in its most fullest sense. He said, Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, interestingly enough, he's going to say that again. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. If you look at verse 8, he says, uh, when he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. So I'm going to cover that in verse 8 because you're thinking, what? He didn't desire them. Didn't he command them? I mean, what's going on? I command you to do this. I don't desire you to do this. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm getting to it in verse 8 because it didn't make sense to me. But back to the text. Fascinating that he's using Psalm 40, right? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Again, I'm going to get to that in verse 8, but isn't that interesting? You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus talking again putting Jesus in David's words behold I have come to do your will O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book now if you have ability to flip back to Psalm 40 um, it's in the middle of the Bible flip back there and let's let's look at the difference between these two it's Psalm 40 chapter chapter 40 verse 6 is where we're going to pick up and so he's it's it's almost verbatim uh It's a little bit different. Uh, You'll notice the differences. Uh, The writer, whenever there's differences, it doesn't mean that the writer uh, isn't allowed to do that. (laughs) So the writer, as he quotes the the Old Testament, remember, is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is, whoever, you know, the, the writer of Hebrews is, this is him being carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired so as he reaches back and uses Old Testament language, inspired by God to, to change it a little bit and say it the way that God wants it to be said. So the best way to understand is when you want to understand the Old Testament, look at the New Testament and see if it's been uh, quoted. And you have a better understanding of the Old Testament because the New Testament writer has explained it to you. Does that make sense? So um, he's not getting it right. He's actually, I mean, wrong. He's actually getting it perfectly right. And the best way to understand it in the New Testament is to look at, in the Old Testament, is to look to see if the New Testament guy has explained it to you. Anyway, back to uh, Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Look at this. But you have given me an open ear. Here we have sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So there's a little bit of a difference. I think that's just pointing to Christ as the perfect sacrifice, the lamb. Burn offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So it's, it's very similar um, from, the, from the other one. But the whole point that he's trying to say, it's just striking where he says, I have come to do your will. In this, in this quoting of Psalms, he's pointing out the eternal wisdom of God and the eternal plan of God from eternity past. He set up a sacrificial system to be a shadow, but always knew, always knew from eternity past that that was not going to be the plan, but there would be the ultimate plan of Christ who would go to the cross. So the point is this, as we're seeing in Psalm 40, eternity past, God has always planned for his son to be the lamb, to be the body that was prepared, to be the lamb that was slain, to be the body that's prepared to come and atone for our sins. And so even though God instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system, even before he did that, the plan was always Jesus. And it was always meant to just be a shadow. It was always meant to just be a signpost to point us to ultimate reality or never meant to save, but always meant to point because signs or shadows don't save The reality of Christ is is what saves. Now, verse 8, he says, When he said, you have neither uh, desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, the question came to me, 
Why did God not take pleasure in something that he commanded? Have this, but I don't take pleasure in it. Do this, but it doesn't please me. Um, what, what's wrong? Is it the animal? Is he just mad with the animal because it's not perfect? And so I want you to do it, but I don't like it. Or is it that he's just mad at the person doing it? You're not clean enough to get it done. It's, it, it, is it just, you know, he's commanding stuff and he doesn't like it anyway and we're just confused. Like, what is it that's going on? I think the only way that we can understand, which seems to be something that is confusing, I want you to do this, but I take no pleasure in it. I'm commanding something I don't like, um, is verse 9. Verse 9 helps us. It's the only possible understanding I can get of why God would command something and then say I don't take pleasure in it. Um, and I've already kind of hinted at it. It's because it was never the, the eternal plan. It was never the actual thing that saves. But it gets us to verse 9. And I think verse 9 is the best way to understand this. In verse 9 he says, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. And here it is. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. So he abolishes the sacrificial, sacrificial system of animals in order to establish the second, the sacrifice of Christ. The first will of God was that there would always be an age of shadows to prepare us for the greater understanding of why Christ really died on the cross. So he doesn't take pleasure in the first or in the sacrificial system because it was always going to be abolished. And he knew that. From eternity past, this is always going to be abolished. It's never going to be superior to Jesus. Jesus is always going to be superior to it. The sacrifices of these animals never ever cleanse. They never ever take away the guilt. They never ever are the once for all time sacrifice. So he, he doesn't take pleasure because they don't do the ultimate work that Christ does. Because Jesus is the only one that can take away all of our sins once for all time by being the perfect sacrifice. So I know the language of he doesn't take pleasure can be tricky, but don't hear it in that way. It's, it's more pointing at the fact that the, he doesn't take pleasure in the fact that this system doesn't ultimately save, but the system of Christ being the once for all time sacrifice. So he wasn't like commanding things that he hates. Um, he was just commanding things that were going to one, one day finally be abolished in order to establish the second. But they had to be done. They had to be done in order to enhance our understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. Which leads um, the writer, as he says, the abolishment of the first in order to establish the second. So now that he's talking about the establishment of Christ being the once for all time sacrifice, we get to see the benefit. This is where it gets more practical because that's a whole lot of theology stuff and I know Hebrews can be confusing. But here comes the, finally, okay. What does all that mean, Fudd? Verse 10. He knew that you wanted to know. Or she, we don't know. Probably he. Verse 10. And, and by that will, here it is. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that is a, hugely deep theological sentence that if you're struggling with sin right now, if you find yourself continually like battling, you need to let all of the truth of verse 10 just wash over you and help you understand the victory you've been given. I know we're going to get to verse 14 and I don't want, to, I want I, we're going to get to that. I'm going to talk about the not yet, but I want you to concentrate right now, Christian, in the already. This is what God sees and believes and what Christ has done. Listen, by that will, we have been sanctified. Notice the verb tenses. What's being said here is that you are sanctified. This is present tense talking. You have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So all the guilt that all the Old Testament saints always felt because it never did anything, all that's abolished. And if you put your faith in Christ, you are now completely sanctified. Let the truth of that wash over you. You are completely right now set apart. You are completely holy. You are completely perfected, completely in Christ. When he looks upon you, he doesn't see sinner. He looks upon you, he sees Christ's righteousness applied to you, completely forgiven. That gives, I think, me, when I wake up every day, feeling defeated, great great worship. I mean, it just amazes me. 
He doesn't see my sin. Instead, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees the, the body of Jesus Christ given right now once for all. So never ever these continual sacrifices. Perfect, that means all the guilt can be washed away. Even though it wasn't in the Old Testament, it can be now. Jesus has fully sanctified us. Jesus has fully sanctified you. Don't struggle. Don't fear. Don't have guilt. I just said you don't have to have guilt anymore. And here's the text. You ever want to know? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. It's the proof text. I don't have to have guilt because we have been sanctified. All right. That's the already. But I know you're going to say, I still live in the not yet. I still live in the not yet. Like, I may be getting kind of sinfully mad at you, Fudd, right now because you keep saying the same thing and it doesn't correspond with my reality. (laughs) Hopefully that's not happening. Um, And so we're going to look at the not yet. But as we look at the not yet in verses 11 through 14, we're going to go to 15 through 18 because I want you to see why living and pursuing sanctification is absolutely doable. He knows that you're like, how is that even doable? He tells you. But let's look at 11 through 14, and I want you to see uh, the, the not yet. I want to make sure y'all know what I mean by the already not. The already not yet is this, if you're a believer in Christ. You're already completely, fully sanctified. 100% forgiven, 100% perfect in Christ's eyes. That's the already. The not yet is, yeah, I don't feel that way. <laughs> like I sinned yesterday, Fudd. That's the not yet, right? So we're going to see that in verse 14 because he says we are being sanctified. The verb tense is saying that we, it hasn't happened yet completely and we are being. You can see it right there, who are being sanctified. So let's talk about the are being. Now, verse 11 is a little weird because we just talked about the full sacrifice of Christ and he's back to the Old Testament system and every priest stands. What he's trying to do in verses 11 and 12, he's just picture 11 and 12 juxtaposed to each other as contrast with each other. Here's what way it was in the Old Testament and here's New Testament. It's awesome. But every priest stands daily at, at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's the way it was. Contrast that with the New Testament, verse 12. And here it is. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, oh, this is awesome. He sat down at the right hand of God. What's the priest doing? Is he sitting down? He's trying to make you like get the huge contrast that you can see it. Every priest stands daily working. It's never done. It's never ever done. He's standing and he's always having to do it. But contrast with Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Sitting down. He's sitting down. So the contrast is huge here. And what he's wanting you to see is there's a few things um, and just the contrast in verses uh, 11 through 12. Let me put up the third thing I want you to see. Number three, go ahead and put it up. Jesus offered one sacrifice in order that we may obey in sanctification. The one sacrifice of himself, in order that, since we live in the not yet, we can obey. We can obey continually in sanctification. We're going to get to how. But let's, let's talk about this, um, this sitting down at the right hand of God by Jesus. Because it has three implications. I mean, three amazing, ridiculous implications. Ridiculous as in like, you know, good. Like, that's bad, but it's really good. Um, all right. The first thing about him sitting is this. It means that the work is done. He's not standing daily like the priest in verse 11. Instead, he's sitting. That means the work is absolutely done. The once, the once for all time sacrifice of Jesus now is perfectly complete. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's no more work for Jesus to do. You can just add for you now. Like there's no more work for Jesus to do in you. You are sanctified. You are forgiven if you're in Christ. He's done all the work. Trust in him and you are completely forgiven. The second implication is that God now is completely satisfied with the sacrifice. Jesus sits down because there's no more work, which means God is completely satisfied. There's nothing else. There's no more wrath coming. All of it has now been satisfied. 
And God is honoring Jesus with the seat right at his right hand, showing that he's fully satisfied. All the wrath has been poured out on Jesus. And the debt for sin has been paid. And this is trying to help us be encouraged that our sins are fully dealt with. Because Jesus gets to sit down right here at the right hand of the Father. It means all of his wrath has been fully uh, satisfied. And here's the other one. And this one, this one's awesome. If you can wrap your head and mind around the beauty of Christ, if you can finally get to the point where he is the king, he's the one calling the shots, you want him calling the shots, you don't like you sitting on the throne of your heart, but you like him sitting on the throne of your heart, he is in charge, he's the ruler, he's the reigner, then this one's the one that you're going to love. And the sitting down shows us this, that together with the God the Father, Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler over all things now. All of his enemies, and he's the sovereign ruler over all of his followers, all of his friends, all of his children. The enemies have been defeated, and those that are his children have been lovingly wooed in into his kingship. And he is the sovereign ruler over all things. That's what verse 13 afterwards is stressing to us. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The enemies have been defeated. He's ruling and reigning on the throne. And we who are his children are absolutely loving that our king is running the universe. We're loving it. It should be demonstrated in the way that we worship. That we love the fact that our king is running the universe. Christ died to accomplish everything. No enemy can do anything against you. There is no word against you anymore. The atonement of Jesus was completely complete. All of our sins are completely forgiven. The work is completely done. The the, um, anger of God has been completely satisfied. And all enemies fall down with absolute trembling at the feet of Jesus because he's the king over everything. He sat down. And when he did this, Verse 14, by that single offering or by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. So he's already using the the already. And here here it gets perfected for all time. Those who are, got to notice the verb tenses here. It's absolutely important. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. This is highlighting for us the not yet side of sanctification. That you still are going through because you're alive and you know you're alive and you're walking through and you're every day, you know, battling sin, battling temptation. And it's present in your life and you know that. This is highlighting that not yet side, that we are being sanctified. The writer in Hebrews is in no way suggesting that we're going to reach perfection before we get to heaven. That's the whole point why in chapter 12 he tells us to resist sin He tells us in chapter 12 that if you sin, you're going to be disciplined by a loving father. That's suggesting that the writer of Hebrews understands we're going to continually sin. What he's wanting us to see then is that there is this already not yet. That we have been declared completely sanctified and that we are being sanctified. But I want to make sure you understand for sure when you contrast verse 10 and 14 that there's just some amazing things in there. The power of verse 10 when he declares you that you have been sanctified, or even in verse 14 when he says you have been perfected, you can be in awe, I mean, an absolute awe of Jesus because that the fact that you have been completely sanctified and he has declared you completely sanctified and he, you can worship him with an, with a heart that explodes for his glory because he's given you this amazing gift of saying no more guilt, complete forgiveness. I mean, just think if you truly lived your life every day 100% rock solid believe in the fact that you've been forgiven. Even though you might be working sin out, that you are forgiven. Imagine how your your, your worship for him would explode. You can also, knowing that the power of Jesus to defeat sin and to declare you completely sanctified and perfect, imagine that power being in your head how vigilant you can be now to face sin. Since you know that Jesus has defeated sin, you know that he has defeated sin, and you know that you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you know that you can defeat sin also in your own life. Because Jesus has already said, you're sanctified. You don't have to wonder, I wonder if I'm going to defeat this sin. 
Huh, it seems so big. You don't, you don't need to wonder that. Of course you are. Jesus has defeated sin completely. And he's in you. So there's no wondering. I wonder if I can ever do this. Of course you can. Absolutely. And then verse 14. Those who are being sanctified. Here we have the necessary obedience that we must walk in. We have to have, we are being sanctified, the determination to be obedient in sanctification. Be obedient. You can do this. It's absolutely doable. You might be asking why. The writer is going to help you understand why. If you're still skeptical and say, <coughs> but I never ever seem to actually have victory. I, uh, I hear you and I see the Bible's probably saying that. So I might be the wrong one here. But um, doesn't feel like it's happening in my life. Doesn't feel doable. How did God make the not yet of being sanctified, how did God make it doable? How did he do that? Let me show you. He tells us in verses 15 through 18. This is, this is revolutionary, if you get this. Revolutionary. So, uh, in the Old Testament, you had the Old Covenant, where the sacrificial system, etc., etc. But in the Old Testament, God also tells them about the New Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, he points to the New Covenant, the New Testament, and he says, there's going to be a new system. And he tells us that in Jeremiah 31. Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote, <laughs> this is awesome, Jer- the writer of Hebrews is going to quote the New Covenant in the Old Testament for us. Y'all got that? He's going to quote the New Covenant that's going to be spoken of in the New Testament It's in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. You're going to get it if you don't follow me. I got it. Anyway, that doesn't help though. All right, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness witness to us for after saying. All right, so let's let's just realize Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant is written in the Old Testament about this new covenant, when it was written by Jeremiah, this verse right here, verse 15 is telling us the Holy Spirit said to them, said this covenant to us. So this is, this is God wrought covenant. When Jeremiah wrote it in Jeremiah 31, the Holy Spirit said it. Says it right there in verse 15. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, the Holy, I mean the Holy Spirit said it. So in Jeremiah 31, when we have the new covenant written to us, um, it's from the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will write, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, the Holy Spirit through Jeremiah writes. And here, here, here's how it's doable. Verse 17, it's okay to star and underline. This is important. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So, number four, the new covenant in the Old Testament makes sanctification doable. Jeremiah tells us, how is sanctification doable for me? How is this process of killing sin, being put in sin to death, and and, and knowing that I'm going to be able to have victory, how is it doable? Because, verse 17, I will remember their sins no more. So he explains this. I'll say it. Maybe it's the most succinct way to say it. Sanctification, present pursuing of sanctification is possible because of the forgiveness that's already been given. He's telling you, I've already forgiven. You're you're struggling with this sin and it might happen today, it might happen tomorrow, but here's the thing. I've already forgiven that. So you can... You can know that sanctification is going to happen because it's forgiven already. I will remember their sins. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Christ's people are going to be perfected or going to be sanctified because we saw last week in 926 that God has already put it away. 926 for he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we know that sin has been put away. And it's been put away in the sense that, 
as Jeremiah says, God has chosen to say, I will forget or I will choose not to remember and your sins or your lawless deeds anymore. I will choose not to hold them against you. They're just, they're forgiven and I don't hold them against you. So the sin that you're struggling with, I know that you can be sanctified because I've already forgiven it and any others that you're going to do. All of them that is going to happen for the rest of your life. God's saying, I've already forgiven them all. So that's how I know you're going to be sanctified. You're absolutely going to be sanctified because everything that's ever happened in regard to sin in your life, past, present, and completely all the way in the future is forgiven. So, of course, you're going to be sanctified because all your sins are forgiven. So, yes, it's doable. You're not perfected yet, but you're constantly forgiven. You're constantly receiving mercy. So how can I be sanctified? Because God's never going to run out of forgiveness. He's never going to keep, he's never not going to keep covering up your sin with mercy. Yes, forgiven. So will it ever stop? Yeah, it will. But how sanctification doable? Because you live in the fact that no matter what's going on in your life, yes, I mean, don't miss this. Yes, you fight. Yes, with every ounce of strength, you, you seek to put it to death. But victory or not, God's saying, of course you're going to be sanctified. I've already forgiven all your sin. What are, you, what are you questioning the fact if you'll be sanctified? I've already said it in verse 10. You're already sanctified. You're already perfected. And these things that you're thinking in the future, this huge deal, uh, Jesus covered those. So while, of course, you kill sin, while, of course, you strive with everything in you, it's not because you need to get yourself clean. Just if I could finally stop sinning and I'm clean again. You're clean. You stop sinning because you love Jesus. Because the most worshipful thought and action for me to do right now is not sin, but instead... Worship Jesus with my life because that doesn't have rule over me. That doesn't have reign over me. My enemies are at the feet of Jesus, verse 13. They're at, he's, he's stomping them. They're dead. He rules and reigns over everything. So sanctification is doable, as Jeremiah 31 says, because the spirit is in us. He's already written obedience on our hearts and minds. And he's already said, whatever sin's going on in your life, I have chosen to forgive that. Every present sin, I've already chosen to forgive it. So if you're wondering if it's doable, it's absolutely doable. As a matter of fact, it's done. That's the whole point. To tell us die. It's finished. That is great reason to be encouraged in time of trials. That is just so God-centered and not man-centered. I feel massively encouraged in times of trials when he says, all your sins are wiped away. You don't have to struggle with sin anymore. Now, if you're not a Christian, not a believer in Jesus, a lot of this might have shot over your head. I want to point to one little phrase in verse 18. There is forgiveness. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The little there is forgiveness, and there is forgiveness, right? Jesus has paid the price. So for those of you that are not in Christ, you need to just key in on the fact of, of this right here. There is forgiveness available to you. The sins that you feel plagued with, the guilt that destroys you, there's forgiveness. All of it can be wiped away by Jesus. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus provides for all of his children complete forgiveness of sin and an entrance, I don't want to say just to heaven, but into heaven, but into heaven because that's where Jesus is. An entrance into being with your king forever. That's where we want to be is where Jesus is. So, 
this is what I want us to do. I want us to worship Christ now because of what he's done. I think the only right response for us is to realize that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, doesn't have to offer any sins or any sacrifice anymore, and that all the enemies are stomped by his feet, as it says in verse 13, and we are the amazing recipients of forgiveness. So let's give him all the worship, all the glory, all the honor he deserves for all the sin that we will commit that's been forgiven and for being the once for all time sacrifice for everyone. Let's pray. (coughs) God, many times we don't dwell and think long-term on the fact that you are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we don't linger and think about all the beauty and implications of the fact that you are the gentle, meek, perfect, holy sacrifice the lamb. And so God, I pray that we would just be in awe of that and be thankful for that and give you the glory right now and worship you. That you have declared us completely sanctified and have made the process of sanctification absolutely doable. Because there is never a time where you will run out of grace. Never a time where you'll run out of mercy. Never a time where you'll run out of forgiveness. So the answer is absolutely we'll be sanctified. Because you're always going to forgive us. I pray that we wouldn't take advantage of that. But instead strive for holiness. Not because we have to get ourselves clean. But because we are clean. And we do it out of worship. Be with us now as we worship you. Praise in Jesus' name.